today's scripture reading comes from the book of 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 to 21. Listen now to the word of the Lord. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. The Lord be with you. It's good to see everyone again. I know that these are unprecedented times, and I'm thankful that you're all able to be here today. Uh, thank you to uh, Pastor Dohi. I thought that was a fantastic message and so timely for us. Uh, I'm going to just continue with the sermon series that I've been on. So this will be now be the ninth and final sermon on the first letter of John. Earlier in the letter, John had mentioned some reasons for writing this letter. In chapter 1, he wrote, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And then in chapter 2, he wrote, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. In today's reading, he gives us another reason, maybe the most important reason of all. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is one of the greatest promises in the whole Bible. To those who believe in the name of the Son of God, you can know, you can have confidence that you have eternal life. Isn't that good news? Especially in this time of uncertainty, here's something that you can be sure of. It's not, I have a hunch I have eternal life. It's not, I have a feeling I have eternal life. Or, I'm pretty sure I have eternal life. You can know you have eternal life. John loves using this word, to know, to reassure us. He uses it 38 times in this letter, and in our reading today, it appears seven times in just nine verses. He tells us that we can know a lot of things about our faith, and most importantly, he says, you can know God, and you can know that you have eternal life. As I mentioned last Sunday, you can know you have eternal life because the testimony of God, the love of God, is not rooted in any sort of feeling, but in the historical event, 
the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You can know this objective reality and therefore have confidence that you have eternal life. Now, I want to be clear about what eternal life is. Some people think it's floating among the clouds forever in a white dress playing a harp. But the clearest definition of eternal life was given to us by Jesus in John 17, 3. He said, and this is eternal life. That, you may know, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus said that eternal life is knowing God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom God sent. This means a number of important truths for us. First of all, this means that eternal life is not something that you get after you die. While there is an element of a future promise, notice that John says you have eternal life. It's in the present tense. You have eternal life now because you can know God now. You cannot know fully now, but you can have a relationship with God and have eternal life in the present. Second, eternal life is inseparable from God and the life in God. As we heard last week, whoever has a son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Eternal life is inseparable from God and inseparable from the son. Now, John makes this very, very clear where he makes a more definitive statement in verse 20. He writes, the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. And then he says this, he, meaning Jesus, is the true God and eternal life. Jesus Christ, the son of God, is a true God and eternal life. Life and eternal life is in God and therefore in the son who is a true God. And our own lives are bound up in this life of God and with God. There is no Christian understanding of eternal life apart from God and apart from the Son of God. And third, eternal life is less about the timelessness of life and more about the quality of life. It is life that abides in the presence of God and has fellowship with God. And so as a community of faith, we have evidence of eternal life when we love one another when we lay down our lives for one another, when we share our resources with one another and with those in need, when we obey God's commandments to believe in Jesus and to love one another. When we do these things, we demonstrate to the world, to one another, and to ourselves that we have eternal life now as well as in the life to come. So it is in this knowing then, in this confidence, that leads us to ask God, to approach God in prayer. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. The confidence we have isn't that we can manipulate God to give us whatever we ask of him, but that we can have confidence that when we pray according to his will, 
we will receive. That's the key. Prayer, according to God's will, is always answered. Always. So how do we pray according to God's will? Simply put, we pray according to God's word. God's word is God's will. Today, for example, you see that it is God's will that you have greater assurance of your salvation. So you can pray for that. You can pray, God, thank you for giving me eternal life in Jesus and help me to have greater assurance of that truth and promise. And in that confidence, help me to further seek your will. That's praying according to God's will. And that's a prayer that will be answered. And as you continue to pray, you will begin to want for yourself what God wants for you and for the world. You will come to trust that God knows you best and wants what's best for you. And the better you get to know God through God's word, the more aligned your prayers will be with God's will. And so your confidence will grow because you find that your prayers are being answered. When my kids were little, they didn't know me or my wife very well. And so they didn't know our will very well. On top of that, they had no idea what was best for them. So they would ask for whatever they wanted, whatever they were feeling at the moment. And most of the time, we had to say no. Can I have ice cream instead of broccoli for dinner? No. Can I stay up all night and play? No. Can I skip school today? No. Can we get that new video console that just came out? No, 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 and no. But as they got older and matured, as our relationship grew, as they came to know us and our will better, they knew that now when they asked for something, they almost always knew the answer before they asked. Can I stay up a little longer tonight? Yes. Can I play 30 more minutes of video games? Yes. Can I sleep over my friend's house? Yes. Can I have a girlfriend? No. Sometimes they knew we would say no, but they asked anyway, hoping that maybe it would change our minds. And it happens once in a while. And of course, the things that we might have said no to when they were younger, we might say yes to as they got older. That's knowing someone's will. Now, let me remind you, that there is a huge difference between knowing God's will and actually obeying God's will. The other day, for example, it was the will of my wife that I get some ground beef. So what do I do? Do I say, that's nice, dear. Thank you for sharing your will with me. And do I just go back to binge-watching Star Trek Picard while eating the last pint of chocolate ice cream in the house? Not that that's what I did. Of course not. I drive to the store. I go to the meat section. But here's my problem. I don't normally do the shopping. I mean, I sometimes accompany my wife to the store to go shopping, but mostly I'm there to push the cart as she shops, and then I carry the bags to the car after she shops. I don't actually pick out anything or make any decisions, except maybe regarding potato chips. So. I get to the meat section, and I see that there's all kinds of exotic meats. There's deer 
and bison and elk and lamb and pork. Pork is exotic in our house. Now, I know these meats are not her will, so I can easily avoid those. But then in the ground beef section, I didn't realize that there was such a variety. There's organic, there's grass-fed, there's ground chuck, there's ground sirloin, and they come in all different percentages of fat and leanness. Not only that, I had no idea how much of it I should get. So what do I do? I call my wife and ask, oh, wife, what is your will? It's easy to say that God's will is to believe in Jesus and to love one another. You all know that. But unless you actually obey, until you practice obedience, it's not worth very much. It's like knowing your mom's favorite lasagna recipe, but until you actually try cooking it with the ground beef your dad brought home, you don't really know it. It's when you start believing and loving that you have more questions and you begin to figure out the will of God for your life. And as you obey, you gain confidence, just like I did when I eventually got the right amount of ground beef. It's a small victory, but the next time that I have to get groceries, I will have that much more confidence. It's the same with prayer. And John gives us here an example of something that we can pray for. He writes, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. Our love of God leads us to pray to God, but our love of our neighbors leads us to pray for them. John makes a distinction here between sin not leading to death, which we are to pray about, and sin leading to death, which we are discouraged from praying about. And so you might be wondering, as the church has for 2,000 years, what's the difference between these sins? And what is the sin that leads to death because you want to make sure that you avoid that sin? Well, over the years, some have said that this sin that leads to death is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, as in Mark chapter 3, or that it is a sin of apostasy, as in Hebrews 6. Still, others have said that it is a sin of suicide or murder or some other big sin. The Roman Catholic Church classifies its very sins as either mortal sins, that is sin leading to death, or venial sins, that is sins that are forgivable. But as much as we may like to order sins by degrees, such as, you know, murdering someone uh, is worse than stealing a loaf of bread, Jesus collapsed all categories and degrees of sin when he said things like, hating your brother is the same as murder. Sin is sin, and all sin is intolerable to God. So instead, if we consider what John has been doing throughout the letter, I think it becomes clear what he meant by the sin that leads to death. Remember, for John, everything is either or. It's either death or life. And what is life? It's having the son. So what is death? It's not having the son. So the sin that leads to death is not having the son. In other words, the sin that leads to death is rejecting Jesus, the Savior whom God has sent us. To reject Jesus is to reject God. 
you have now self-excluded, self-quarantined yourself from fellowship with God. The sin that leads to death isn't any particular sin which you might commit and can't be forgiven. It is the refusal of Jesus, the Son of God. It is a refusal of the cross and the atonement and the forgiveness that the cross has purchased for us. When you refuse the love of God in Jesus Christ, there can be no forgiveness and no life because you have refused to acknowledge your sins. What John is reminding us is that sins within the faith community, confessed, forgiven, and prayed about, do not lead to death, but is a part of what it means for us to walk in the light and to continue in fellowship and to restore fellowship with God. But sin outside the faith community, that is the sin that denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, breaks that fellowship with God and therefore can only lead to death. Finally, the letter ends with a rather abrupt and unconventional ending. Instead of the usual farewells, the letter ends with, little children, keep yourselves from idols. It looks doubly odd because John has not explicitly mentioned idols at all in the letter. But if we think about it for a moment, it makes complete sense. What's an idol? In classical Greek, an idol was a phantom, a shadow. It's not real. It's something false. So John is telling us to stay away from false gods, from false ideas about Jesus Christ, that Jesus, who was just somehow only a moral teacher, or the Jesus who only seemed to be human, or the Jesus who didn't really die on the cross and so on. He's admonishing us to guard against anything and anyone who tells you something different about the truth that is revealed in the scriptures about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Little children, church, keep yourselves from idols, from false ideas about Jesus. I got to thinking this week that as a last word, little children, keep yourselves from idols is not bad. How do we normally say goodbye? What's the last thing you usually say to a child before they head out the door and go to school when they used to go to school? Or what's the last thing you say to your child when you drop them off at college? Have fun? Study hard? Fighting? Don't forget to call your mother? See you later? What about the end of a business meeting? Or at the end of a social gathering. Whatever you used to say, I suspect you're not saying it anymore. The other day, someone from our church encouraged me by stopping by the house just to say hello and decided to drop off some hoagies for dinner as well. He stayed in his car, and knowing him, I stayed about 15 feet away just to be on the conservative side. We caught up, and it was great to see his face face to face. And then as he was leaving, the last thing he said to me was something along the lines of, be safe, stay healthy. Two months ago, or even a month ago, he would not have said that. That would not have been his last words to me. No one used to say that 
as a final word in saying goodbye. But now that's become our standard goodbye. I see this in my emails. So many people end their emails now with be safe and stay healthy. I find myself doing this as well. It's not how we used to end our correspondences or conversations, but it reflects our current condition. I think it's the same with John. Perhaps under other circumstances, he might have ended his letter with traditional words, but he's facing a unique challenge in his church, a dangerous situation in his church where people have the wrong ideas about Jesus and they're shaking up the faith and the assurance that people have in their life in God. And so the last word he has for them, the last thought he wants to resonate in their ears is to keep away from idols, from false notions about Jesus, the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God, because he alone is the life and life eternal. Maybe we could have put it more positively. Stay with Jesus, the true God. When it comes to faith, it's still the same today. Avoid idols and stay with Jesus. I want to remind you that when we end our worship today, my last word to you will not be stay safe. Of course, I want you to be healthy and to stay safe. But my last word to you today, as it is in every worship service that we have together, will be a word of blessing. Because if you forget everything you heard, if you forget all that we shared, let the word of God, the word of blessing, ring in your ears. The blessing is for the Lord to be with you. Especially in these times of social distancing, know that the Lord is with you and with you always, even to the end of the age. Let the blessing of God, the presence of God, give you hope and peace today and every day. Let's pray together. Lord, we come together in this space and call upon your name, seeking your will. We believe you call us to pray for one another. And so at this time, we want to lift up our sisters and brothers whom we are especially mindful of during this season. We pray for those who are sick. God, be their healer. We pray for those who are dying or have died alone and for those who have, not, who have lost their loved ones and could not even be near them or to have a proper memorial or burial service. God, be their comforter. We pray for the elderly, the immune compromised, the poor, the uninsured, the undocumented, the homeless, the socially isolated, and others who are particularly vulnerable during this time. God, be their provider and strong advocate. We pray for the Asian and Asian American communities who are experiencing increased racism and maybe experiencing heightened anxiety and fear. God, be their shield and strength. We pray for the young and the healthy and others who may be tempted to neglect best practices in favor of their own comforts and preferences. God, be their source of wisdom and compassion. God, we pray for all who are experiencing 
heightened anxiety and fear. God, be their peace. We pray for all whose jobs will be cut back or lost or remain uncertain. God, be their hope and bring to light new opportunities. We pray for families with young children who are struggling, who are juggling working from home while checking homework and trying to figure out remote learning and providing meals, all without the usual help of family, friends, and schools. God, be their sustainer and be with them in their exhaustion and their frustrations and in their need of patient understanding. We pray for families without children and for families of one and for all who may be struggling with increased isolation and loneliness. God, be their joy. We pray for students as they struggle with disruptions to their learning. And we pray especially for seniors who may be grieving as proms, graduations, jobs, and other aspects of their lives are lost or remain uncertain. God, be their light and guide them toward a brighter future. We pray for and thank all who are working to keep us safe and healthy, for all whose jobs require face-to-face interactions and increased risk to themselves and to their families. God, be their protector. And we pray for ourselves. Lord, even as we ask you to do for all whom we have prayed for, help us also to do our part. Help us not to give into fear, to hopelessness, to anger. Instead, help us to be obedient to your will, to remain faithful, to be creative, to look out for one another, and to love our neighbors as we have always been called to do. God, be our God. Trusting you, we pray now the prayer Jesus taught us. Our Father, 